the biggest and most important bank in the United States and maybe even the world. This is Industry Focus. Hi folks, Christine Harges here for The Motley Fool, and today I'll be digging into the Federal Reserve Bank, its history and purpose, some issues that it's facing today, and I've got with me our foolish senior banking analyst, John Maxfield. So the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank of the country, actually just had its centennial two years ago. Let's start there at the very beginning. John, can you tell us a little bit about why the Fed was created? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go back, so the Federal Reserve came into being in 1913, and that was six years after the panic of 1907. And those two things are not coincidental. So if you go back to the beginning of of banking in America, or or the beginning of, let's say, modern banking in America, which was um, the Civil War when Abraham Lincoln pushed through the National Banking Acts, um, in order to fund the Civil War, um, he um, had put into place a national currency. He allowed for the establishment of national as opposed to state banks. So if you go from the Civil War until the Panic of 1907, it was almost every single decade we had a major banking panic, and frequently these turned into full-fledged economic depressions that were akin to the economic depression of the 1930s. And so the thought was that, look, the policymakers and bankers in the United States looked around the world and said, um, what, why is it that the United States is so prone to these economic disturbances while other places are not prone to them on, on, the, same, um, uh, on the same frequency? And they concluded that it was likely because we didn't have a Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve does is it acts as a lender of last resort. So when you go through a banking panic, because banking panics are natural. When you, when you have credit, credit makes countries grow. But then sometimes people get a little bit out of control with their credit, and we saw this during the housing bubble right before the financial crisis. When that gets out of control, you need an entity that can step in and help the banking system from totally freezing, and that's what that lender of last resort function is of the Federal Reserve, and that's why they put it into place to hopefully decrease the incidence of financial panics. So that lender of last resort thing, that is clearly a huge part of the the Fed's purpose. Can we hit on uh, any other angles that the Fed also has to to consider in their job other than just this in a crisis lender of last resort function? Absolutely. So the lender of last resort function was really the the impetus, as I understand it, for the Federal Reserve in the, in the first place. But once that impetus was there, then they built in a, a variety of other responsibilities, one of which is it's, um, it, it has become a primary regulator in the banking space, and, and, and more specifically, it is the primary regulator, not of the banks themselves, but of the bank holding companies that then own the banks. So, so that's, their primary, that's their primary regulatory role. Um, and but beyond that, and this is something that a lot of uh, a lot of listeners would have probably heard about, you have the dual mandate, and that is where the Federal Reserve is responsible for balancing um, low inflation or relatively stable mo- money supply uh, against uh, full employment, which full employment is, is something like five to six percent or six and a half percent unemployment. Because if you have uh, your unemployment goes too low, there's too much money going around in the economy and inflation will go up uh, and, and vice versa. If inflation goes down and you have, and particularly if you have deflation, you can have unemployment go up. So, so that dual mandate, it's all about balancing those two things. And so are they contradictory goals or what? Well, theoretically in economics, like I said, they are it's 
it's not that they are contradictory, but they go in different directions. As inflation goes up, theoretically, unemployment goes down and vice versa. So it's about kind of keeping those in a stable equilibrium um, that makes the economy, you know, that, that facilitates economic growth um, at the same time with not letting it get totally out of control. This is probably a, more of a question of opinion, but do you think that traditionally the Fed has leaned heavier towards one as opposed to the other? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, you know, if you look back in time, the Federal Reserve is, you know, we've had really dramatic inflation at periods in history. You know, starting, we had that, we had oil, we had some oil embargoes in the 1970s that, that caused in, uh consumer prices to go through the roof. The Federal Reserve then stepped in and played a very robust role under Paul Volcker of bringing inflation down, but then that kicked it into a, into a pretty severe recession, which jacked unemployment up. So one could say, like, at that point, they were certainly favoring price stability over unemployment, but I would say that nowadays they're favoring um, reduction of unemployment over price stability because you know, in, uh, in, interest rates are still super, super low, even though we're starting, to, we're finally starting to see economic activity pick back up, but they're still not interested, at least they haven't picked up, uh, they haven't increased interest rates yet, which would lead me to believe that right now they're really interested in, in getting that unemployment um, to stay really low and to get an industrial activity picking up. So talk to me a little bit about how interest rates are tied into the dual mandate. So interest rates are tied into the, into the dual mandate through the banking system. So if the Federal Reserve, let's say the Federal Reserve wants to um, control inflation, well, what you do is you would increase interest rates, which, make, which makes lending less profitable for banks. And when I say interest rate, you'd increase interest rates, you'd increase short-term interest rates. And because banks make money by arbitraging between short-term and long-term interest rates, if you increase short-term interest rates, that's going to decrease their profit margin. So it's going to make lending and therefore the availability of credit um, a less, uh, to put it in FDR terms, fashionable uh, trend nowadays, uh, or when that's going on. Um, and then on the other side, as you decrease interest rates, you make credit, the provision of credit more profitable. So that will then boost credit, which by boosting credit will then boost economic activity. So everything goes through those interest rates uh, in terms of achieving the dual mandate. Interesting. So we've got that dual mandate, uh, inflation, unemployment. Isn't there a conversation that's kind of been going on about another benchmark that uh, is a little bit more unprecedented that might be used? That's exactly right. And this is a really interesting thing going on with the Federal Reserve right now. So if you go back to the Great Depression, one of the things that, that people blame the Federal Reserve for is not only getting us into the Great turning turning a, a kind of a normal recession into a Great Depression by imprudent monetary policy, but then later on in the 1930s and 1937 in particular, the Federal Reserve saw industrial activity slightly picking up, and saw inflation slightly picking up, and they wanted to, to nip that in the bud because this was only a decade and a half after that extreme inflation in Germany triggered the ascent of Hitler and all those, all those horrible things that then came afterwards. And so the Federal Reserve in 1937 jacked up interest rates, and that then pushed the U.S. economy back into the Great Depression. And so the fear right now is that if they increase interest rates, it's going to do the same. So what they're doing is not only are they watching unemployment and inflation, but they're also watching economic growth and industrial activity. And the thought process is that um, – if they can get industrial activity on a stable path, it's at that point 
that they can feel comfortable raising interest rates. And how can you measure industrial activity? Oh, I mean, they have hundreds of statistics that do that. I mean, you know, on, on a very, very high level, you have your GDP, you have your GDP, your GMP figures, but then you can go down into specific industries. You can look at steel production, you can look at car production, you can look at all those different things. But it's really, it, what I mean by industrial activity is the activity in the actual economy, not in the money markets um, that banks are kind of overseeing. Huh. Interesting. So yeah, I, I can see why they would kind of have to be careful given all that history. Um, along that same line, what are some of the criticisms of the Fed? Well, one of the, you know, if you go back to the very beginning, one of the main criticisms is that it was created to be a cartel that protected the large national money center banks at the expense of small banks, because before that, anybody could open a bank and then be given the opportunity to succeed. But once the Federal Reserve stepped in, it was much more difficult. There are much larger barriers to entry into the industry. So, so that's one of the biggest um, kind of criticisms of the Federal Reserve in terms of its inception. But then more recently, it, the, the thought is that the Federal Reserve is um, biased towards inflation. And as inflation increases, that decreases what everybody, uh, what the money that is worth, uh, in everybody's savings account, it decreases what that's worth. And so, p- for people who are retirees who are not in the market right now, making money, who are you know who no longer work, that that's a big problem. And then when you have low interest rates like this, obviously people who are on fixed income uh, in retirement or for whatever other reason, they see their income on an annual basis decrease. So that's that's another big problem that that people identify with the Federal Reserve. Or I, don't, I wouldn't say problem, but I would say criticism. Okay, sure. Um, so what do you think is next? I mean, there's a lot of talk about interest rates and how they're going to need to be raised eventually. Is that what you think that the Fed is going to, to do as its next big play? Or do you think they'll just sit tight for a little bit? What, what's uh, coming down the pipe? Well, the big question is whether or not the United States is going to repeat a pattern that, we, that we're seeing in Japan right now with, with relatively stable economic activity uh, where you're just not seeing much growth. Um, and you're seeing because of that, so, so Japan, if you go back to the mid-1990s, it had a very similar crisis to what we experienced in 2007, 2008, 2009, and it has not been able to get economic growth back up and going again. And because of that, their interest rates over there have stayed low for this entire time, so what, almost 20 years. So the concern is that if the United States can't get things up and going again, that interest rates are just going to stay low, you know, presumably indefinitely. Um, but the more optimistic view is that things will recover, things will get back up and going. Our, demographic, our demographics in this country are much more positive than Japan's. Um, we have much more natural resources than Japan has. We have a much larger industrial base than Japan has. So when you factor all those things in, um, the opportunists or the opportun- people who are optimistic about things um, say that, that that Japan comparison probably isn't fair, but it is certainly one extreme that could come about um, if things doesn't, don't start picking up. And if they do start picking up, then we'll see interest rates uh, start to tick up as well. And so for now, we hang tight and we watch. Um, all right. That, uh, that's, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, John, thank you so much, as always. Folks listening at home, thanks for tuning in. And remember that we've got an email address set up just for you guys if you want to reach out to us with any questions or topics that you'd like us to cover on the show. The email address is industryfocus at fool.com. And I know I speak for both John and myself in saying that we would love to hear from you. And until next time, Fool on. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.